You're all well. You've got a Bible app? Yeah. We're so 21st century. Brilliant. Fantastic. That's some smartphones and iPads and all that. Fantastic. Bible apps. Anyway, I was going to make a joke, but I won't. Um, uh, Matthew chapter 16 uh, to uh, verse 13 and uh, to the end of the chapter. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? He asked. Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't have the mind in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'm sure you, you've heard that passage before. I remember uh, being at uh, Spurgeon's where I trained, where Phil trained, and things had kind of moved into the 19th century by the time I was there. I'm not saying Phil's older, it's just that there'd been quite a lot of... Well, he is older, but not that older. And um, he had the ordeal of sermon class, and you've probably heard him, he'll tell stories about that. But things had kind of got a little bit more modern. They didn't kind of shoot you down into kind of a bloody mess on the chapel floor, for my year anyway. One of my friends was preaching, was given this text to preach uh, in Matthew 16, and it's a, a wonderful, important, challenging passage. And he, we had the joy of having to pre- preach for 11 minutes. You're thinking, why can't we do that anymore? <laughs> anyway, uh, he preached for 11 minutes on this passage, and uh, we, we had to critique him and assess him, and he got a mark in part of the preaching course. And he did a really good job, but one of the things the, 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 uh, the, the tutor 
highlighted to him at the end was that as he preached, he focused very much on the first part where Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they say, some say Elijah, some say a prophet, some say you know, John the Baptist. Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And the first time in Matthew's Gospel and, and this foundational moment where Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. In other words, in all that's gone before in the 15 chapters, the pennies drop for Peter. He's realized that the one prophesied, the one expected, the long, one long foretold has come amongst them. The Messiah, the Christ. And he says it, and Jesus says, it's fantastic. You didn't just work this out with pen and paper and kind of lots of head scratching. This is a revelation from God. And the foundation of that truth will form the foundation, confession of Christ as Lord of the church. And he preached a great sermon about how we need to confess Jesus and and trust in him and, and make him our own. And it was a good sermon, and he got encouraged for that. But the the lecturer said, it's all very well and and good that you preach that, but you forgot the second part of the passage. And Gavin said, well, I know I did, but in 11 minutes, you can't do everything. And he said, well, I know, but it's really important that you link, or that you always have in mind, it's not just the confession, Jesus is Christ the Lord, but it's now you're called as a follower. Interesting, all the way through this passage, it says, Jesus spoke with his disciples And from that understanding, from that recognition, that God-given belief that we confess and call people to, believe and trust your life and utterly, fully to Jesus Christ, your Savior. But if we don't link it to, he is the Lord, then we've not truly understood that he is the Christ, the anointed one who calls followers. We'll be thinking about discipleship over the course of the coming weeks. It's on our vision statement over here. They keep moving it. (laughs) Proclaiming Jesus Christ to people today, making disciples, building God's kingdom, praying for revival, planting new churches and reaching the nations. We spent some weeks before Christmas considering how we, we... maintain leaning into evangelism to mission proclaiming jesus christ to people today it's good news still but just as the gospel says go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you and surely i'm with you always to the very end of the age part of our remit part of our calling part of the essence of being a follower of jesus is being a disciple, a follower, making disciples. Disciples make disciples. Do you pray? And so, Father, we, we gather together in this time. None of us is perfect. None of us know everything. But I pray for myself and in this time for my friends that you would bring fresh revelation. For those who have yet to decide to become followers of Jesus, please prompt and provoke them to make that choice.
It's a life worth living. And I guess for the majority of us here, we've made that step and that choice. And in these moments, teachers, Jesus, just as those disciples asked, just as you taught them what it means to be Jesus' people, followers. Not in half measure, not just in that which we think of as the spiritual, but in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A reminder that we have on Wednesdays or at different times in the week, different house groups that meet. And many of the house groups are following questions that we, we kind of um, pose in relation to these Sunday morning sermons. And it gives chance for you to reflect, to kind of feedback, to ask questions that might be provoked or prompted. Very happy on the door afterwards to talk to you. You can phone or email or ring. It gives us nothing more pleasure than actually hearing how God is speaking and responding to that. It's really discouraging when no one makes... I'm not asked fishing for stuff here, but it's really discouraging when you just preach what you believe to be what God is saying. And it's like, it seems to just go right over. But I know God's at work and he purposes and fulfills what he wants. Just take a moment to look around you. You're not doing it yet. Take a moment to look around you. It's really great to see you back here this Sunday. It really is. And uh, it's really great to be part of a church with you wonderful people. That what God is doing amongst us is amazing. And believe it or not, you and I are the people God has chosen in this place to be world changers. World changers. World shapers. We may not make the headlines or have kind of national celebrity status, heaven forbid anyway. But we are God's people, his disciples, his people in this place that he's commissioned to proclaim the good news and see the world transformed. We live in the legacy of centuries of Christians who've done just that. Isn't that great? The next uh, little screen, uh, I've put some footprints, and there's a, a text that'll come up. God will always have something more to teach man or woman. Uh, man will always have something more to learn from God. We'll allow Irenaeus a kind of non-gender-specific language. He did write a long time ago. And by man, he didn't just mean male. He meant people. God will always have something more to teach man, and man will always have something more to learn from God. Now, that doesn't mean that we have something beyond Jesus to grasp, or there's a God behind Jesus, and that Jesus is only kind of a part reflection. Jesus is the full revelation of God. If we want to know God, it's Jesus. That Jesus is the focus of our worship, the focus of our, of our faith. He is the one who has come amongst us, the Word made flesh. But what this man, what this thinker, this disciple was trying to get at is to say that in this living out, that profession of faith, that trust in Jesus, we are always on a journey. We've never got there. We've never kind of reached the terminus. We've never reached the destination until we're with him in glory. 
that as we journey day by day, moment by moment, God is always beckoning us on, calling us on, alongside us saying, come and follow me, come and live my ways. Don't think you've just got it all sorted. This is an adventure to be lived. Do you believe that? Someone else put it like this. Uh, when talking about footprints, it's not the footprints poem, you'll be disappointed to know. There are, they are not monuments, but footprints. A monument only says, at least I got this far, while a footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. Sometimes in Christian life, we, we have amazing encounters with God, or there's a time that we grow, or there's a time that we stepped out in faith, and that's fantastic, and we encourage that. But the nature sometimes of, of kind of moving on with God is that sometimes we, we kind of begin to look back more than look into the present and what God is calling us on to be. It can be individually and can be as a church. We kind of look back to the glory years and think, oh, it was great then, but we live on the past glories. And in so doing, kind of erect these monuments of, that was when God moved, wasn't it great? Well, yes, it was. But implicit in that is, well, where is God moving now? It's really good to see these times, to see our journey as like footprints. That we look back and see the journey we've come from, where we were and where we have come, but not to sort of erect a monument and say, well, that was the glory day. But to see this is where I moved on again, because disciples follow Jesus. We keep moving. We keep moving onwards as God calls us. It's really there implicitly in Scripture. Um, this is kind of an introduction to the theme. We're going to be looking really practically at lots of aspects of discipleship, about worship and about uh, hospitality and about giving and about generosity and about what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Christ in some really at practical ways, there's going to be lots in store. And, and again, it'll all be online for you, almost after as the service finishes, to listen and think through again. But let's have a look at some text. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, notice the language that's used. Uh, and he asked for letters. This is Paul, uh, Saul as he was known. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues in D Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way... Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. That in the early days of the life of the followers of Jesus, they didn't get called Christians. They got called followers of the way. Implicit in there is this sense of, it's not just as Christians you become static and labeled and kind of like monuments, but their journey is, their belongs to the way, the way of Jesus. The, uh, the next uh, verse is, but some of them, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Again, the early church, the early movement that Jesus has established, the people of God, known as the way, because they were living differently. Again, in Acts 19, 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance against the way. In, uh, I'm sure you know, the, the first reference to the word Christian, and it does get used in, in the, the New Testament, is in Acts 11:26 in Antioch. And the text says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first. 
in Antioch. Do you know what Christian means? The first part's obvious, isn't it? Followers of Christ, or kind of in a generic, kind of little Christian, little Christs, little Christ, Christians. That even in Antioch, where, where Paul was establishing a church, the gospel was reaching the Gentiles, that they named them derogatory, in a derogatory fashion, little Christs. It wasn't a kind of, oh, aren't they great, they're Christians. It was, it was a mocking term, a, ridic- a term of ridicule. But implicitly in it, why did they get that title? Because the disciples, the early Christians, so reflected Jesus. That as the world looked on at them, they saw in the people, their neighbors, their next door work colleagues, a different way of living, a different way of behaving, a different way of speaking, a different way of conducting the affairs of life. Christians, they called them. So much so that uh, just a, a few uh, decades later, uh, a chap called Pliny the Younger, and I've put a nice little picture of him there. Isn't he a handsome fellow? He wrote, he was a, a, a kind of civil servant of the Emperor Trajan in, in around 111. He uh, was kind of writing back to the emperor to Rome to head office because he discovered in where he was working and administering in the Roman Empire, he discovered that there were these Christians and they just didn't fit in. They were different. They didn't... You're reading the text already, aren't you? I could see the eye like this. That's good. That these people didn't do what they were meant to do. They lived counterculturally, and it was a real challenge. So in a letter in 96 AD, AD 96, he reports of the rapid spread of Christianity in the province, both in rural and in the urban areas. He wrote that temples were abandoned and businesses of those who sold fodder for sacrificial animals had been shut down because they were no longer needed. World changes. Pliny interrogated those accused of being Christians and sentenced them to death if they insisted on saying that they were despite that they were Christians despite being asked the question three times. And he dispatched those who were Roman citizens to Rome for trial. Others who were accused um, sometimes denied their faith. Pliny twi- twice refers to Christ, but he says this. They maintained that their guilt or error had amounted only to this, that they had been in the habit of meeting on an appointed day before daybreak and singing a hymn antiphonally to Christ as if to God and binding themselves with an oath not to commit any crime but to abstain from theft, robbery and adultery, from breach of faith and from repudiating a trust when called upon to honor it. After this ceremony, it had been their custom to disperse and reassemble to take food of a harmless it doesn't sound very world-shattering, does it? I mean, they weren't meeting in Terrier Square with guns and bricks. But it had come to the notice of the Roman authorities. Because the way that they lived affected the local businesses. What they did transformed the culture in which they were living. Discipleship made a difference. That the Christians in Bithynia, where he was writing from, had become so numerous, at least by AD 90, that many of the temples that they used to worship in had to shut down. Isn't that great? The good news of God transforming, rescuing people. The Christians viewed 
their honor and worship and loyalty to Jesus higher than that of the emperor of Rome and the gods that were formerly worshipped. And they would rather die than comply with the tests that were put before them. And Pliny, the outside observer, was deeply opposed to these Christians because they were subversives. Because he didn't know how to respond to them. He didn't know how to handle them. I mean, what do you do with people who let their yes be yes? Who won't kind of abuse their power or status for their own gain, but look to the interests of others? What do you do with those sort of people? What do you do with people who don't play the the games of the world, but live consistently a different way? And he knew that the empire was being shaken to its very core because of this Jesus revolution. Does that excite you? Hallelujah. You know, the challenge, the challenge very much came a couple of centuries later when things drastically changed in the empire and, and Constantine, the emperor, converted to Christianity and by default, the whole of the people in the Roman Empire became Christian because they belonged to the, just to the empire. No longer was that kind of that central call of of Jesus, who do you say that I am? Have you come to this God-given revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the only Savior, the way to find peace and life and eternity and find your way in God's presence again? Well, if you just are a Christian by label because you belong to a certain country, why do you need to confess and have that moment of God-given revelation? You belong anyway. And if you lose the first part, you lose the second part, the other side of the coin, that says, well... If I live and confess Jesus Christ as my Lord, I also have to live for him and take up my cross daily and follow him and follow his ways and his lifestyle and example. Well, that kind of gets jettisoned as well. And we've been struggling again and again in our living out of this Christian faith to live counterculturally because it's been made to be easy. Lip service. Simple title. That was never the intention of God. He called a people together to live his ways. Discipleship. The way of Jesus. Discipleship is living out the confession. Jesus is Lord. Another description. uh, Discipleship is living out the confession. Jesus is Lord. It's a contradiction to say no, Lord. It doesn't work. As if truly we are saying we are honoring him above and beyond all gods and all authorities and all rulers and all who would have authority over us. We can't say no to him, can we? Yes, Lord. Discipleship is living out the confession. Jesus is Lord. And in so doing, we become world changers, world shapers, family, in our families, in our workplace, in our communities. People, when we speak of Jesus, take note because what we say matches to something lived out differently. Why Why would people talk about Jesus if they didn't have a living testament for them to read and see? Discipleship. Discipleship. Just take a moment. A moment to think. As I had that quote earlier on, that these, this journey with God, has it become a monument or is it a footprint? 
A monument only says, at least I got this far, while a footprint says, this is where I was moved on again. We've gone a week past New Year's Year's resolutions. But this isn't just a one-off, one-day-a-year thing. This is a daily choice. I will live for him. Take up my cross daily. I will live out this confession. Jesus is Lord. And it's a struggle and it's a challenge because some things will have to change. They will have to change. In you and in our church, they will have to change if we take this seriously. Do you believe that? They will have to change because they aren't conforming to Christ's way. And some things will be encouraged and built up. And say, yeah, that is great. More of that, please, because it's the fragrance and the characteristic and the, the presence of Jesus. More of that. Very quickly, just seven, seven things that talk about discipleship. As Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls people to follow him, not just live out his teaching, but follow his ways. Completely committed. You know, when we see ourselves as his followers, that Jesus has looked in the eye and said, Come and follow me. He knows your face. He knows your name and says, come follow me. Personally chosen by Jesus. But that altars, it's not some sort of, well, we're just in this big herd together moving along with the flow. That it's personal, that Jesus loves us and draws alongside us and says, come on, my friend. I called you by name, come follow me. I'll show you my ways. I'll walk with you. You know, Olympics is this year, if we hadn't realized You know, if someone's chosen to represent their country, their whole attitude changes. You know, you see it. There's lots of news clippings, aren't there, about athletes getting ready. I mean, James is a rower amongst us, and he's out rowing every breath, it seems, every minute of the day. But those who are kind of, you know, committed to the Olympics, their life is conformed to that goal. And that's just to win a little medal and a bit of fame. How much more for those who've met the King of Kings? You see, the Christian church, perhaps in the West, not really globally, suffers mainly from large numbers who feel they've made a decision for Christ. And they've kind of chosen a certain church on their terms. And not heard the call, follow me. Lay down your life. Live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, called by Jesus. We're called to obey. If anyone would come, if any person would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow. So, seven marks, just for thought. What characterizes a follower of Jesus? Firstly, a supreme love for Jesus Christ. Jesus says these strong words, if any person comes to me and doesn't hate his father or mother or his wife and children or his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Come on, Jesus, you're being a bit ridiculous now. It's a bit over the top, isn't it? He's not saying hate, but he's using a figure of speech to say contrast. If you love your family and you love your wife or your husband those dear to you, how much more should it be for Jesus? 
how much more? You know, self-love, putting myself first, yourself first, is one of the biggest hindrances to discipleship. That if you want to be a disciple, we've got to get to grips with repentance. True repentance, saying, Jesus, I'm sorry. Change my heart, change my motives. Because until we recognize we're in error, it won't be that we choose his new ways. Not until we're willing to lay down our very lives to him are we in the place that he wants us. A supreme love for Jesus. Secondly, there's a denial of self. We read that in the passage in Matthew 16. If any person will come after me, let him deny himself. It's not cultural. It's not of the 21st century this way. The adverts say, feel good, take this thing, live this way, treat yourself to this. The gospel is about denying of ourselves. If you want to find life, lose your life. A deliberately choosing of the cross. If any person comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's not some physical infirmity or mental anguish. But the pathway is a, is a road or a route deliberately chosen. A path which so far as this world goes is one of, one of dishonor and reproach. It's one that the world will not understand. And people, friends, will say, you just, I, I've begun to put a little bit more on Twitter and Facebook of, of things that I read that I think are interesting and just kind of want to share them. And some of my friends I was with at New Year, they said to me, you've gone all religious. And then they thought about it and said, well, you can get away with it, can't you? <laughs> but it wasn't just in jest. that people don't understand because they've not met Jesus. And they don't understand because they don't think he's worth it. And the cross for generations has symbolized a shame and persecution and abuse which the world heaped upon the Son of God and the world will heap upon those who choose to stand against the tide. Someone said it like this, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. Fourthly, a life spent in following Christ. Follow me. Not just for a day or a week, but follow me every day. What characterizes the life lived for Jesus? It's a life of obedience to the will of God. It's a life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a life of unselfish service for others. It's a life of patience and long-suffering in the face of grave wrongs. It's a life of zeal of giving of ourselves, of self-control, of meekness, of kindness, of faithfulness, of devotion. It's a life that must be walked. And it's a life that exhibits the presence of Christ amongst us. Fifthly, it's a life of fervent love for those who belong to Christ. I think these things, though challenging so far, are, are things we kind of, as Christ, good Christians, we go, yes, this is where it really gets tough. We have to love those around us. Look around again. All these beautiful people who are all perfect except you. They're not. 
But Jesus calls us to love those he's called us to be with. It's not optional. By this, all people shall know you're my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 35. A love that looks out for the interests of others. A love that is patient and kind and doesn't blow up or explode at one another if people are a bit difficult. It doesn't, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 for reference, you know, love live it out. Without this love, discipleship isn't truly discipleship. It's just cold, legalistic, kind of mock spirituality. Sixthly, an unswerving, um, what do I phrase it as? A, a growing, a consistent growing obedience, particularly to Jesus and what he says. If in John 8, 31, if you continue in me and my word, then you're my disciples. It's not just like in the parable of sower, well, the good seed comes and it flourishes for a moment. But the, the seed in the good soil is those that consistently choose Jesus, that choose him again and again. And when persecutions or worries or trials come along, we don't kind of turn our back on Jesus. We say, no, I will keep going because I trust in God implicitly. Jesus said, anyone who looks back after putting his hands to the plow isn't fit for the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus says some really harsh stuff, challenging stuff, not just platitudes and niceties, stuff that challenges deeply. But when we realize it's the pearl of great price, following him is no, there's nothing better. Even with the struggles and the challenge, it's worth it. And finally, a forsaking of all to follow him. Forsaking of all to follow him. Gosh. You know, theologians and writers can think of a thousand reasons why it doesn't mean, why Jesus doesn't mean what he says he means. But unless you give up all, unless you lose your life, you won't find it. Maybe you think, let's not do that discipleship series after all. Let's just carry on the way we were, gently, comfortably. But you know and I know that that's, that's dissatisfying. It's not honoring. It's not what stirs you within. It's not that conviction, that call that God has placed in you to say, the church and myself and this world shouldn't be like it is now. It should be different. It has to be different. And then when we grasp this thing of discipleship, when we live it, and when we get to grips and we start to put in place what the ways of Jesus, then shift comes in our own life. Then our heart is transformed, and then people see, and our world takes notice. The power of God through us. Do you want that? I hope so. I do. Dallas Willard says this. The only biblical category of Christians are intentional apprentices of Jesus, desiring both how to, le- how to learn how to live appropriately under God's rule and how to offer its blessings to others. Christians are intentional apprentices of Jesus, desiring both to learn how to live appropriately under God's rule and how to offer its blessings to others.
I want to ask some questions as we pause and we pray and say, Jesus, what do I have to do in response? Maybe you've already made sacrifices. If so, you're seeing that in some ways it gets easier, doesn't it? You've witnessed the benefits of giving and are blessed because of it, but it gets harder too. The temptation to level off increases with each passing year. Pride tells you that you've sacrificed more than others. Fear tells you it's time to worry about the future. Friends say you've given enough, given it enough, and that it's someone else's turn now. What does Jesus say to you? Let's pause for a moment in quietness. Jesus, it doesn't come easily. And I confess that in my own life, I know that that I'm quite content with kind of leveling off at times. But I thank you for your still persistent voice that says, come on, come on, come to me. And Jesus, I like this church. There's so much to be thankful for. But if we just like the the nature of it now, we're going to be upset when it changes. Not because we're manipulating or doing it from human ways, but you said that I will build my church. And so we say yes, Lord. May we say yes to you personally with the inclinations and the attitudes of our heart to anything that is contrary to you in your ways, no. And yes, Lord.
And I pray in these coming weeks as we preach and teach and learn and reflect and respond, they wouldn't just be good ideas, but I pray, Jesus, you, you change us. If you agree with that, just say amen quietly or loudly or in your heart. We want you, Jesus. Because we know that this lost world is dying. And we know that you've saved us and rescued us and given us new life, not to just carry on in the old ways, but to live a new way, the way we were purposed and made and a good life and a right life. And we know it's going to be hard at times because people won't get it when they look at us. Help us in those struggling times. Particularly help those who feel themselves, even now, to be like a a bruised reed or it's just really hard and there's not even much energy to keep going. Lord, I pray your spirit to come. We don't want to lose, see anyone fall away. We don't want to be, be having to grieve when people have put their hand to the plow and they've taken it off and wandered off. Lord, we don't want that. Help us to be your followers and to make followers. We're not just individuals, but we're a body, a family. Disciple us as we disciple one another. And give us all the grace that we need. Turn and give me your full attention at all times. Then you'll see more clearly what to do than if you focus on all you've got to do without me. Turn and give me your full attention at all times. Then you'll see more clearly what to do than if you focus on all you've got to do without me. put a prayer on the screen. It's written by an amazing man of God. It's called Francis, and he lived in a CC. And he prayed this prayer, and I put it there because I'll read it through, and you can read it. And if you're happy with these words, I'd like us all to pray, if you feel happy to pray them, to pray them with me. I'll read it through for you first. Oh Lord, may we love you with our whole heart by always thinking of you with our whole soul by always desiring you, with our whole minds by always directing all our attentions to you, and by seeking your glory in everything. May we love you with our whole strength by exerting all our energies and affections of body and soul in the service of love and nothing else. I'll pray it again, and if you want to pray this with me, 
please do so. Oh Lord, may we love you with our whole heart by always thinking of you, with our whole soul by always desiring you, with our whole mind by always directing all our intentions to you, and by seeking your glory in everything. May we love you with all us by exerting all our energies and affections of body and soul in the service of love and nothing else. I look forward to seeing what God is going to do. I really do. He's an amazing God. Do you know, as I stand here, I, I, I know many of you and um, I know some of your situations. And this, we're going to focus on themes of discipleship. And this one has been quite general and quite broad. But we, we do want to encourage one another and pray for each other. So I don't think there's anything particular, but I, I just know the circumstances and situations going on that maybe I've talked about repentance and this, this kind of making a fresh start. That might be something you want to respond to. It may just be that the road is tough at the moment, that there's things that are going on that no one knows about or a few do, and it's a real challenge, but we, we just want to pray that the Lord would break into that and help you, give you this, the endurance, the perseverance. Or well, there may be a kind of real, yeah, I'm up for this. I'm really looking forward to the, to the journey and I'm kind of all guns blazing. And we want to pray and bless that. It's great. It may be that you're sick or troubled. We want to pray for you. We've got at least 10 minutes before the children will be crowding at the door and we'll be sending parents out. Let's all stand. Uh, the band's going to play. I'm going to invite those who are kind of prayer team people who've prayed for people before come out uh, at this point, would you? And um, it just kind of makes it slightly less weird for people who want to respond. If you want to respond in any way for any of these things, uh, come out, please, and we'll pray. We can talk to each other and ask and say, what, are you come to pray or to be prayed for? Share as much or as little as you want. And we'll just keep responding to God. We'll keep responding to God. And then have refreshments very soon. Before we sing our last song, we're just going to just sing a response. He is Lord. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead. And he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ
in the sand he's Lord over the circumstance over this life we just speak the freedom and the power and the, the life of God over controlling habits and behavior those unspoken fears of worry that is ongoing and persistent and robs you of sleep. Jesus is Lord. Over every sickness, Jesus is Lord. Over our finances, Jesus is Lord. Over this nation, Jesus is Lord.
and um, it's time surely to collect the children, but please do uh, keep responding to God. I can see that some have been touched by God in your seats, some have come forward. Uh, there's no hurry that people will be happy to pray for a good time longer. We're going to be artificial in it, but we, we lift him high. We're Jesus people. He's risen. We're not defeatists nor defeated. In the victory of Christ, it's not triumphal in the sense of, aren't we great and stuff the world, but the love of God in our hearts. Agents of change, transformers. People who lose their life for the sake of others, who give away what they've received and say, yours be the glory, Lord. Yours the honor. Yours the fame, yours the reputation, yours the celebrity. Jesus, Jesus. Christians that we it's like God has a, has a big house and we, we come into his house and we're, we're carrying our bags of shopping, we're carrying our baggage, our sins and we, we come through the door exhausted after being in the world and we just, we go through the front door and we sit down on the chair exhausted and throw all our bags on the floor, our baggage, our metaphorical baggage and for a lot of us we just stay there and we, we don't explore God's house, we, we just stay in the porch, we stay sitting where we've, we've fallen as we first came into his, his house, his presence. And God wants us to, to go to the other rooms in the house. He wants to show us that there is more and that we're settling for too little and that he wants to sort out the baggage. He wants to sort out the, the sin in our lives and he wants to heal us and make us whole and then send us out again so that when we come back next time into his house, we bring new people and that we need to get out of the porch area and, and trust him and let him heal us and make us whole so that we can bring other people into his house because he wants it full of people and of love and of laughter. Thanks.
Adore, 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 Adore,